Be seated. And uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, we are so glad to be able to sing praise to you, to confess this great truth for all who are in Christ here this morning, that there has been this great transition from blindness into sight, from death into life, from darkness into light, from hell to heaven. Lord, we thank you. This is all of grace and the grace that once found us and the grace that has brought us far is the grace that will lead us home. And so we come this morning needing no less grace than we've ever needed, but again needing your grace, needing to drink deeply of Christ and the grace that's in him. Lord, please feed us, give us food and drink in Christ. Feed us with your word and your spirit. Open our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts. Cause us to hear you as you meet with us and confront us. Cause us to bow before you and not resist you. As you show us the truth, as you shed light on our lives, Cause us not to excuse and and explain away, but to say, yes, Lord, I see it. And so, Lord, speak to us by your word. Speak to us now, we pray, uh, that your children would be ready to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been for uh, just about six months now uh, studying Mark's gospel, and we come this morning just about to the halfway part, halfway point uh, in Mark's gospel. We'll hit it officially next week. Uh, Mark's gospel, everyone is, is agreed really that it divides very nicely into two halves. The first half, the first act, uh, really runs up through cha- chapter 8, verse 30. And then the second half of Mark begins with chapter 8, verse 31 and runs to the end. And One of the things that makes it very clear that there's this dividing line in Mark is that everything in the first half, right up until chapter 8, verse 30, everything is driving at this, answering this one main question, who is Jesus? We'll find that that question is climactically answered next week in Peter's confession. You're the Christ. And then everything turns like that. And beginning with the the next verse and continuing through the rest of Mark's gospel, everything is driving towards Jerusalem. Jesus himself is moving toward Jerusalem for his death and for his resurrection. And so everything in the second half of Mark's gospel is geared at answering not who is Jesus, but now what does it mean that he is the Christ? In fact, what does that mean both for him and what does that mean for his disciples? For you and I, if we intend to follow him. So we're coming near to the end of the first half of Mark's gospel. And this question, who is Jesus, is before us again today and next week. And the reality is that every one of us here needs to be crystal clear about that question. Who is Jesus? That's an obvious thing to say. But it needs to be said because it is not enough for you and I to have 
some idea or to have much less our own ideas about who Jesus is, you need to have true knowledge of him. You need to see who he really is if you're going to respond to him as you really should. And as we study Mark's gospel, we're able to see this is exactly the point he's making. And it's very interesting in this text that we're about to read, even the structure of it is intended to show you, you really need to see who he is. But in order for that to happen, you need him to open your eyes. So let's read this passage, Mark 8, verses 1 through 26. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they, that is the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. 
His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Mark's presenting a sequence of very important events. But there's even more than the content of what Mark is saying, which we'll look mostly at. There's actually, if you look carefully at the structure of it, there's something going on at a deeper level as well. Because if you were to go back to chapter 6, beginning in verse, uh, I think it's 30, 30, 31, and go to the end of chapter 7, take all of that as one unit, and then compare Mark 8, verses 1 through 30, something very interesting appears. And that is that the theme and the structure of what Mark says in those two places is exactly the same. Here's what it is. Here's the aerial view of what you see if you look at the ordering of those two texts. First, there's a feeding of a multitude, a miraculous feeding of a multitude. You find that in chapter 6 and here in chapter 8. Then there's there's the crossing of the sea and landing with Jesus and his disciples. That's followed by conflict with the Pharisees. That's followed by a conversation about bread, which is followed by a remarkable healing, which is followed ultimately by a confession of faith in Christ. In both of those sections, that's the progression. That's the structure that Mark is using. It's not accidental. Uh, The authors of these Gospels are very careful historians But they're also theologians. They order their history to show you certain things, to make certain points emphatically. So what's Mark's point? Let me read to you uh, the observation of uh, one of the commentaries. I don't usually read uh, much from commentaries, but this was so helpful, and I thought it says it more succinctly than I could have said it. So I'll just read it. By skillful arrangement of the material, Mark indicates that it was necessary for the Lord to repeat the sequence of acts and teaching a second time before their significance dawned upon the disciples. Their ears remained deaf to Jesus' teaching and their eyes blind to his glory. In this respect, the incidents which conclude the two cycles are significant. The opening of the ears of one who was deaf and of the eyes of one who was blind prefigure the unstopping of the deaf ears of the disciples and the opening of their eyes. This was the necessary prelude to their confession of the messianic dignity of Jesus. Mark wants you to see as he arranges his gospel in this way, he does so because he wants you to see that you and I need Jesus to open our eyes or they'll remain shut, to open our ears or they'll remain shut, to reveal himself to us or we'll remain clueless. These things will never happen until Jesus Christ graciously intervenes in your life. But as you'll see in this text, once he does, what you'll see is that he provides for you more generously and compassionately than you could ever have imagined. Now, what do we see in this text? How do we see that worked out? First of all, there's the loaves, the story of the loaves and the feeding of the 4,000. Here's Jesus in the the desert again, uh, feeding a multitude of people, 4,000 people, with uh, just a few loaves and a few small fish. It's not a repetition of the previous miracle. Some critics have 
suggested this is just a, a mistaken repetition. It's a redundancy in the text. It's just a, the numbers are wrong, but it's really just a retelling of the previous miracle. There certainly are similarities between the two, to be sure, but there are so many distinct differences in the two accounts that it's very clear that these are two separate miraculous feedings of multitudes. In fact, in the way that Jesus speaks to his disciples later, it makes it clear that he's drawing their minds back to the leftovers from two separate feedings. So here's another instance of Jesus feeding a huge crowd with just a little bit. And one of the similarities is Jesus' compassion on weak and needy people. Notice the details in verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. One of the things that becomes plain in this, as well as Jesus' great compassion on them, is the fact that these people have put themselves at great personal risk and loss and hurt in order to listen to Jesus teach them for three days. How many of us would do that? How many of you would go out of your way and spend three days without anything to eat? You don't even take time to pack a lunch. But you just go because you've got to hear him. You've got to hear what he has to say. Well, that's what these people had done. They were putting Christ first. They were giving more attention to him than to even their own needs, which I think is, by the way, a hallmark of Christian discipleship. Putting Jesus, prizing him, prioritizing him, even above all of your needs, that you see your need is so great, your hunger so serious to hear his word, to listen to him, that you would go. Well, that's what they did. And for three days, they were with him. And so he has compassion on them because they've been there without anything to eat. And so Jesus continues, and in that compassion, he feeds the crowd. And it's at this point that we also need to recognize a significant difference between this feeding and the one that we read about back in chapter 6. Because what we find here is that Jesus is with a different kind of people. Back in chapter 6, what we read is Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fish. He was in Galilee among a Jewish audience. But here in chapter 8, what we read is that he's moved into the region of the Decapolis. This is a Gentile area where the crowd that he feeds would have been a mixture of Jew and Gentile and most likely predominantly Gentile. Would have been a mixed crowd. What's Jesus showing? Mark is showing us that Jesus is intent to make it known that he hasn't just come for the Jews, he hasn't just come for Israel, but for Gentiles also. And I think if we pay careful attention, there's something else very interesting to notice here to this point. A few weeks ago, Hal preached about the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. You remember that exchange where this Gentile woman from Syrian Phoenicia comes to Jesus and asks him to heal her daughter who has an unclean spirit. And you remember Jesus' shocking response to her. It's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. He's testing her. He wants to see her faith. And he sees it because she responds, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs gather crumbs from the children's table. And Jesus approves of that. He says, oh, your faith is great. Go, your daughter is well. And he commends her for her great faith. Well, why does Mark put this story 
where he does. Because what is this feeding of the 4,000, many of whom are Gentiles, in this Gentile area of the Decapolis, what is this feeding but the fulfillment of that woman's statement? Jesus proves that, yes, indeed, he's not just come to give crumbs to the Gentiles, but a satisfying meal, the fullness of his blessing. So that just as the Jews ate and were satisfied in the previous miracle, and there were 12 baskets full left over, so the Gentiles eat their fill. They're satisfied. There's plenty left over, seven baskets full. Jesus has come not simply to save Israel, but to bring salvation to everyone who will acknowledge their need and come to him. What an amazing picture of his compassion. He hasn't come to give tiny doses of compassion to people who are already doing their best. He's come to give huge, overwhelming, extravagant, abundant provision to outsiders, to the sick, to the poor, to the rejected, to the last people you'd ever expect him to include. And by the way, that's how we should see ourselves, right? But as good as this news really is, Jesus comes with compassion and he's extending his blessing to the Gentiles as well. And he's being abundant in his provision feeding them, having compassion on them. But as good as this news is, and as amazing as this miracle is, there are still some people who don't believe. In fact, there are still people who continue in their arrogant opposition or their blind unbelief to Jesus. And we see this in the verses that follow. And that may be the case for some of you this morning. You may know a lot about Jesus, but still be trapped in unbelief and unable to see his glory because you haven't yet seen your need for him. Well, we see that unfold in front of us in the verses that follow, in verses 11, 12, and 13. What happens? Well, immediately, we're not told how long. So I shouldn't say immediately. Mark doesn't say immediately. He says it a lot, doesn't he? But he doesn't say so here. At some point, somewhere, the Pharisees come to him. And Mark tells us why. They come to argue with him and to test him and in order to test him, that is, they want to prove his, his validity. They want, some, they want some ID. They want him to prove that he has authority. They want him to prove that what he's doing is legitimate. And so they say, show us, some, show us a sign from heaven. Prove it. Prove that all these miracles are legitimate. Prove that you have the authority to do these things. They've already said earlier in chapter 3, you're just doing this by Satan's power. Jesus responds to them, but they still are persisting, and they, so they come and they're testing him. Now remember, the Pharisees have witnessed many things that Jesus has said and done, haven't they? They've heard his teaching, they've observed its authority, they've seen him do miracles. They'd studied the Old Testament, they were the Old Testament scholars of the day. They had learned the Old Testament, they had given themselves to its interpretation. And now here they are, privileged with watching the Son of God, the Messiah, speak and act right in front of their eyes. But how do they respond? They, they come and argue. They want a sign. They want him to prove himself. And in all of this, they show that they're simply unwilling to take him at his word. They're unwilling to take him at his word, demanding more evidence from him when they've already shown that they're not willing to respond well to the evidence he's already given them. Now, that's a problem today, isn't it? And increasingly, this is the spirit of the age where people who are not willing to believe the Bible, 
They're not willing to take Jesus at his word, but are always wanting more. More, give me more evidence. Show me another sign. If, you, if God would only appear to me, then I would believe. But in fact, there's no uglier mark of unbelief than a prideful heart demanding more signs from God when he's already given so much. So these Pharisees come with their obstinate unbelief, demanding from Jesus a sign from heaven. And what does he say? Nope. He sighs deeply in his spirit. He groans in agony and in anger. Why does this generation always seek a sign? Why will you not take me at my word? Why will you not listen and watch and believe? But no generation will be given to this sign. Uh, No sign will be given to this generation. And he departs. He leaves them. Now, some of you today may need to admit, acknowledge that this same disposition is lurking in you even right now. But sadly, we see in the text that the hard-heartedness and unbelief is not only found in the lives of Jesus' enemies, but also in the lives of those who are closest to him, which I think serves to warn us to be on guard against the sort of hard-heartedness that would blind you and me to the glory of Jesus Christ because it happens in the disciples as well. And you look and see in this conversation that begins in verse 14 that very thing. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples leaving the Pharisees. And what are we told? It's actually tragically comical. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, at least they should have been able to see the the irony of this, the humor of this. I think it's, again, tragically comical. Where had they just been? They had just been with Jesus in the wilderness, watching him feed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few small fish. And not too long before, they'd been with him in another occasion where they watched him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. That's 9,000 people with 12 loaves and a few fish. And what are they worried about? Oh, we forgot the bread. Of all the things that they shouldn't have been worried about, bread... And you have to use your imagination a little bit, but I think you can, it's not a stretch to imagine them in the boat. And they're, maybe they're huddled up in the, the one part of the boat together and they realize they've only got one loaf of bread and there's several of them and that one loaf's not going to be enough to round. They start hurling, Andrew, you were supposed to get all those baskets of leftovers. I thought you were going to get them. I was helping clean up all the other stuff. Well, they didn't bring any bread. And Jesus, we're told, aware of this, does he sense their frustration? Does he hear them arguing? Does he simply know their hearts? Of course he knows their hearts. But he speaks up. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And still they don't understand. They think that he's talking about the fact that they only have one loaf of bread. They, they hear him, but they completely miss what he's saying. And that's one of the things that Mark is presenting here to us, the danger of hearing but never hearing of seeing but never seeing, of being right up against the truth your whole life and never really seeing it. 
Now, what's Jesus saying? Leaven is like, it's, it's like yeast. You put a little bit in the dough, and it spreads out through the dough, and it causes it to rise And frequently in the Bible. Leaven is used as an image of, of, of sin, either immorality or bad teaching or whatever it might be. A little bit begins to work its way, and it spreads out. So watch out. A little bit spreads and becomes a great deal. It may not seem like much at the beginning. It may seem like a little error in doctrine. It may seem like just a little slip in morals. And if you allow it in the door, it's going to spread. It's by its nature going to spread. It's like leaven. Now, Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, what's he talking about? What, how, think about this. How have we seen the Pharisees and Herod responding to Jesus? They have been the picture. They have been the models of self-reliant, proud, skeptical, cynical unbelief. They have been the poster boys of being right on the front row and missing the whole play. Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for the kind of hard-heartedness that will lead you there as well. Because already I see that you're seeing the information and missing the story. And so he tells them, watch out for it. The disciples miss it because they're preoccupied with the bread. Now, What's the real tragedy that they're not able to see who Jesus is? They're not getting the point of the miracles, and so therefore they're worried about bread when they should be trusting in the one who they've seen provide all that people could need. Now here's, I think, a very strong line of application for us. It's been very important for me this week. Time after time after time after time, they have seen him and heard him act and teach and yet, when push comes to shove, how do they respond? Oh no, what's going to happen? We left the bread. We don't have enough. It's the same for you and me. God shows himself to be faithful. He shows himself to be present with you, to care for you, to provide for you, to meet you in your need. And you see that and you give thanks to him for that. And then it comes again. The need comes again. And what happens? So quickly. What's going to happen? forgot the bread. And we live as if God has not repeatedly, repeatedly been faithful. We live as if there's some question about his character. We're so fickle. We see him and we don't. Right? You understand that? We see him, but we don't. We, we, we know him and we know the details, but we miss the point. We know him, but our knowledge needs to keep growing and maturing. And that's why Mark puts this next story where he does about the blind man. Jesus opening blind eyes. It's the first blind man we've seen in Mark. It's not the first miracle. Why does Mark put it here? Well, notice the healing. Notice, notice what Jesus does when some people bring this blind man to him and beg him to help him. Verse 23 he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Do you think seeing things clearly is a theme? He saw everything clearly. Who wasn't seeing everything clearly? 
the disciples weren't yet seeing everything clearly. They were seeing, oh, I don't know, like men, uh, are trees walking. Sort of. Sort of seeing the outlines of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Sort of getting the idea, but missing a lot. And in need of the kind, gracious work of Jesus to open their eyes. That's why Mark puts this here. To show that, yes, they knew Jesus. Yes, they were seeing, but they needed to keep seeing, didn't they? Jesus restores the man's sight gradually, not because it's a super hard miracle, but because he's teaching his disciples a crucial lesson, which is that only as he keeps opening their eyes will they see him. And that's what will keep this hardness of heart away. Now let's think about this. This this sight of Christ. One day, every Christian will be glorified. We need to think about that, don't we? And that will mean that you won't need faith. That's what's so hard about being a Christian in this, in this life is faith. You're, you're not there yet. You won't need faith then. You'll see Jesus, not just shadows and sketches and sacraments and word. And You'll see Jesus for who he, You'll see his, the full glory of his face with your own physical eyes that are stuck inside your resurrected body. And you'll see him. And you'll behold it. That, that will be the glory of heaven in the new heavens and the new earth is forever. You'll, you'll be seeing Christ. Not deceived about him, not forgetting him, not hard-hearted toward him, not wandering, nothing. Seeing Jesus. But in the meantime, what do you need? For, if you're a Christian, that's, that's, that's a certainty. That's your future. That's your treasure, your inheritance that God has stored up for you. No one can take it from you. But in this life, what you need is to continue to have your vision sharpened. You need to have your eyes cleared. You need to have your sight adjusted so that you're increasingly seeing Jesus Christ for who he is. That's why Paul prays for his friends the way he does in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Gives us a great prayer to pray for ourselves. In fact, a great summary of that prayer is the quote on the front of the bulletin. Unveil yourself, God of glory. Wake us up to know you, Savior, King. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Drive away the darkness that blinds, chokes, and shrinks us. Make us see. Do you pray that regularly for yourself, for your friends, for your children, for your family? Oh, God, make us see. Keep away the things that would cloud our view of you. Keep away the things that would distort our view of you. Make us see. Show us your brightness. Show us your grace. Show us your glory. Help us to see it in the scriptures. Help us to see it in our lives, in each other. God, make us see. Well, that's the need here. And that's the point of this entire section. So let me ask you, do you see Jesus? It's a simple question, isn't it? Very profound. Do you see Jesus? If you're not clear about who Jesus is, you'll be clear about nothing in your whole life. You see, Jesus' identity, as he presents himself here, he is the one who provides. He is the one who opens eyes and ears and hearts. It means that there's no neutrality. You're either taking your stand with him and hoping in him for all that he gives in this life and the next, or you take your stand against him and you make your demands of him. You may seem nice about it, 
You may seem very modest and kind of agnostic about it, but you're making your demands of him. Show me. Do this. Do this. You haven't done this. What about this? Why do you do it this way? But you either bow before Jesus or you take your stand against him. And one of the things that's so urgent in this text is this. Notice how Jesus deals with those who skeptically, cynically resist him. He leaves. Your doubts about Jesus, your skepticism toward him in the end will separate you from him. It's the most fearful thing in the whole world that you would persist in your own evaluation of life as if Jesus is to answer to you. And in the end, it'll, he'll, he'll say, okay, that's it. And he departs as he departed from the Pharisees. Please don't do this. Jesus is willing and able to save. He, he can more than overcome the hardness of a heart, the cloudiness of a mind. And when he does, you'll discover that he's more generous and compassionate than you ever could imagine. You begin to understand things as they really are. So some of you may be skeptical and cynical, and that you need to hear that. But so many of you are are believers in Christ, and you believe the Bible, you believe what God has said, you believe what he's done, and yet in a pinch, you struggle, and I struggle in the same way that we forget. I don't mean you forget the data. I don't mean you get amnesia about the content, the data of Scripture. But you forget what it means, don't you? You forget the significance of it. Like the disciples, you notice, they remember the data. How many baskets were left? Twelve. How many baskets the other time? Seven. Exactly. You don't get it. You can have all the data, all the information, and not get the picture. The difference is hard-heartedness. And that's what Jesus says watch out for. How do you watch out for hard-heartedness? By coming to Jesus Christ, not delaying, not staying away, not shielding yourself. God, forgive me. God, have mercy. God, help me. God, make me see. And he'll answer that prayer. And he'll, he'll give you a heart that is softer and softer and softer. So let me ask you this question as we come to the Lord's table. This is, these are familiar stories for most of you. You read them over and over and you get, yeah, yeah 4,000 people, seven fish, seven loaves, a few fish. You should be absolutely blown away by this. When was the last time you were just blown away by who Jesus is and what he does? What he's done for you. Today? This week? When's the last time you were really blown? That's, that is what faith is. It's wonder and trust without reservation. And that's what he's eliciting here. That's why he's doing these things to say, do you see? If you can see, it's because I'm at work in you. Keep looking. Keep seeing. There's more to behold. So here's what I want to tell you today. Jesus comes in with all of us. We struggle with our apathy, our indifference, our doubts, our fears, our anxieties, our unbelief. And Jesus speaks now as he did then. Do you not yet understand? Are you seeing? And there's this wonderful invitation that comes with that. That you can come and see him for the first time. Or you can come and see him for the hundredth or the thousandth or the millionth time. And never run out of beautiful, wonderful things to behold. 
because there's no end. There's no end to it. As someone once said, in him and in the glories of his excellence, there is neither brim nor bottom. Come and see him. Come and see him. Let's pray. Lord, cause us to see. Cause us to see Jesus. Again or for the first time. Keep us from the hard-heartedness that would leaven our lives with unbelief and with hardness. And give us the gift of a soft heart, a tender heart that is always receiving the water that you give us through your word. That it wouldn't roll off, but that it would go down and fertilize and moisten and and enrich and bring great fruit. Lord, open our eyes. Make us to see. And make us to see even now as we come to the table that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. In Christ we ask. Amen.